Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor for his third episode will be Dr. Brandon Brown, a pediatric radiologist and Renaissance man from Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, there are multiple studies suggesting that there are too many radiology tests being ordered, and there's disagreement about what to do with incidental findings on such tests and what to do with them so patients' lives aren't made worse by the testing. Brandon's going to help us to pick through the forest of information to understand when a radiology test might or might not be in our best interest and and what to do with these incidental unexpected findings. Now, Andrew, this this episode was your idea because of experiences you've had. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of why this is such an important topic? For sure. You know, and I I anticipate this is something that many of our listeners will recognize in some form. Uh, It's something that we get to deal with frequently, and it causes a lot of stress for patients. But probably the most salient story that that I recall was a a lady in particular, this lady, I'm going to say 55 years old, uh, no prescription medications. And so she's one of those patients who come in to make sure everything's going okay for a wellness exam. And uh, the kids are out of the house, getting excited to be a grandparent sometime in the future, want to make sure she's healthy. So she, you know, we talked about it. She decided to do one of these heart smart CT screening exams where the hospital only charges you 50 bucks, even though it costs them $1,000 to run it. You know, how can they afford to do that? Just are to you make serious? Sure Those okay. are really that expensive to run? $1,000 is my estimate, but that's how much the diagnostic stuff costs. And I know that they only pay 50 bucks. I know right. the radiologist gets paid more to read it, you know? Okay. So they're doing it at a loss to check on your heart and see if you'd have risk factors for heart disease. Well, the thing we were looking for with that actually turned out to be great. She was very healthy. But then they identified just a little uh, pericardial effusion, a little water around the heart. That's weird. And then a couple little things in the liver. Um, and, you know, the radiology reports for people who have seen those, it could be benign, it could be cancer, it could be an infection, it could be anything, correlate clinically. Okay, oh. so she's, you know, was healthy and now she's got these things. Uh, and so, okay, so it behooves us to look into them. It's hard to ignore those things. So then she gets an echocardiogram, which says your heart looks okay. And lo and behold, the pericardial effusion is gone. But <laughs> now we have these things in the liver and they recommended another imaging study. So I believe we ordered a CT scan, which would be the next level study in uh, kind of complexity and costs. And uh, lo and behold, can't really tell. You need to get an MRI as recommended. Oh, my goodness. So we get the MRI of the liver, and it says probably benign, but can't be sure. Check again in six months to be sure. So then we get another one in six months, and they say, okay, finally, uh, the liver is okay, but we actually noticed something on your kidneys. So we have to get another imaging of the kidneys which I believe also led to a lung nodule. So this lady was healthy before, took two years and I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars and worry and everything to find out that she is still healthy. But that's how the hospital can afford to offer that test for 50 bucks because they get all this stuff on the back end and the poor patient and poor me trying to figure all this out. And the poor patient was worried about it the whole time. I said, I'm not sure this is the best way to do this. You know, so we've got to talk to Dr. Brown to figure out what's the appropriate way to interpret these incidental findings that, you know, gee whiz, it could be something bad, but most of the time it's not. And we never would have known if we weren't looking for something else. Oh, my goodness. Well, in fact, the American College of Radiology on their website has a term and a definition for this kind of thing. And they call these growths incidental omas. And oftentimes for medical backroom humor, we will add OMA to the end of a lot of different terms and make inside jokes. So OMA really just means a growth of. So this is just an incidental growth, not expected. In other words, you were trying to see if something was or was not present. And whether or not it was present, something else showed up. That is an incidental OMA. And that word really is in the medical literature. And a lot of times patients, I think they hear OMA and they say, wait, is that cancer? Because a lot of cancers end in OMA. 
But yes. this is not meant to be that. No, that that is correct. Like they'll hear that at the end of melanoma or carcinoma. And yes, those are cancers, but oma by itself just means a growth. So how common are these? Well, 10 years ago, a study showed that if you look at all radiology tests, about one in four of them will lead to an incidental finding. And the highest is with the CT scan. Oh, a little over 30% of people will end up with finding something they weren't even looking for. And the most common thing that's found is not some kind of inflammation, uh, but it's a growth. Something, and of course, when people hear growth, they think, like Andrew said, cancer. Most commonly, the, the, the five, the top five in these would be a nodule in the lung. You said your patient has. A nodule on the thyroid gland in the neck. Mm-hmm. A nodule on top of the kidney in the adrenal gland that makes your adrenaline and your cortisone. Um, a cyst on the ovary. And finally... Uh, a widening of the aorta, the biggest artery, as it passes through your abdomen, which can lead to a very expensive and intense form of surgery that may or may not be necessary. Oh, yeah. And, you know, at least for the the folks that I get to talk to, whenever they hear growth or something on my lung or something in my kidney, they think, is this cancer? Is this a problem? Is this why I get that back pain a couple times a year? I, I knew there was something wrong. I mean, any number of places your mind can wander, especially if your sample size is just yourself. On the medical exactly. side, we see a lot of these, but man, translating that into reassurance is really difficult. So we really want to speak to you patients and parents of patients who end up in this scenario. What the heck do we do? And, and this might be part of the reason why healthcare is expensive in the United States compared to other countries. In fact, healthcare in the U.S. compared to the other 10 highest income countries on average is twice as much per person, yet we have the lowest life expectancy in this group. And it's probably because we are so darn overweight and obese and have diabetes and hypertension compared to these countries, we also order more tests than any other country. In fact, CT scans per thousand people per year, United States, almost 300. That means that three out of every 10 people on average in our country every year has a CT scan. That's That's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an awful lot, but I I believe it. I mean, I don't know about you, Tom, but I mean, that, that resonates with me. That is just just incredible. So we want to cover with Brandon, you know, what to do with these incidental findings, how much testing is enough, how, when should you ask, you know, gosh, doc, do I need this test? Is there a simpler way to do this? What will happen if it's negative or if it's positive? Um, and, and then, you know, what are the downsides, other downsides like radiation exposure? For sure. And, you know, the extra testing can lead to more radiation, but also which screening tests are legitimate. We hope to dive into that in a future show as well, but there's medically oriented screening tests that, you know, I might recommend to a patient. And then there's screening tests that patients bring to me that some guy in a motorhome charged them 500 bucks for. And I said, (laughs) I have no idea what this even means, if it was even done right. Um, so there's, there's a whole lot out there. And so I would definitely run, run that by people. Well, as we come to the end of this first segment, you know, what's next. It's our medical trivia question of the day. And the category for today is radiology on the highway. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Question magnets used in an MRI scanner, magnetic resonance imaging scanner are incredibly strong, 10 to 60,000 times stronger than the earth's magnetic field. In fact, metal objects near an MRI can become projectiles that harm patients and staff, so metal objects are kept away from scanning areas. The unit of measure for the strength of an MRI's magnetic field is the same as a type of innovative car roaming the roads of our nation. What is the eponymous unit of measure that applies to both a car and an MRI's magnetic field. You're going to have to wait till the end of the show to find out. We'll be back with Dr. Brandon Brown and radiology testing and incidentalomas here on Dr. Doctor after the break. Here we are back with our guest on Dr. Doctor today, Dr. Brandon Brown. He graduated from the IU School of Medicine, not only with an MD degree, but with a Master of Arts. He got a philosophy undergraduate degree at the University of Dallas, and he is now associate professor with tenure in radiology, Pediatrics, Surgery, OBGYN, Philosophy, Medical Humanities at the IU School of Medicine and School of Liberal Arts. Wow. 
He's also a pediatric radiologist at J.W. Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis. He directs fetal and perinatal imaging. He directs physician vitality and values. So that's where they go to get more energy, your office. <laughs> I believe you can provide that. He also does teaching and research in medical professionalism and ethics. He's on the board of directors for the Association of University Radiologists and the Society for Pediatric Radiology. And he's a member of the section of bioethics in the American Academy of Pediatrics. Brandon, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Well, let's spread the pleasure around now. We introduced the topic of incidental OMAs in the top of the show. Brandon, in your real life experience, when do you run into incidental OMAs? Boy, you know, that's kind of like saying, when do you see organs on imaging studies? Pretty much <laughs> every time I look at a picture, I see something. In fact, I often tell residents who are training in radiology that the main goal of learning how to be a radiologist is not to find what's wrong, but to recognize and discard what's normal. And that's really, to me, what incidentalomas are. They're normal things that don't fit into our pre-designed category of how the body should look. Because, you know, human beings are diverse and they don't always read the textbook. You know, that's something when I was, you know, training people in dermatology or training family practice residents, looking at everything on the body, learning to recognize what is normal. Yeah, that's a big thing. So both we, we two have visual specialties yes. and you don't think about it going in, but otherwise everything at the beginning is abnormal. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And you know, there's a, there's a tendency for us to want to know as much as we can. Uh, and I think it's, it's a good thing and it can lead to, you know, a lot of wisdom, but sometimes it can cause us more headaches than it's worth. And I think that's where all the energy around the topic of incidentalomas comes. You know, Brandon, a lot of times in family medicine, we, we order imaging studies and we get them back and there, there are incidentalomas, sometimes in the impression, which is the main part that we read. And then a lot of times <laughs> they're hidden in the body. You know, we mentioned it, but it's not in the impression. Patients sniff those out. And what I usually am met with is really anxious patients. Um, what, how, I guess, should a patient respond when they hear that there was an incidental finding on their test? Well, you raise a great point because as we're moving towards more and more transparency in medicine with patient portals, you know, sometimes patients get their radiology report at the same time, or maybe even before they talk to their doctor about it. So, um, I can, I can understand exactly what you're saying. And, uh, I think that we need to remember that, um, there's, as radiologists, there's a responsibility not just to repeat a catalog of everything that's visible, but to try to interpret. So we talk about interpreting exams, and it's a mistake to just uh, create some sort of verbal carbon copy of an image. So as a radiologist, I try really hard to be careful with my language, with my adjectives in describing things. And if something... Uh, has a name or if something is a little uh, atypical, I always try to use the word benign or normal or a variation of normal in the report because I think you're exactly right. We can inspire a lot of anxiety. But from a patient's perspective, um, whether or not you see those words, knowing that there's something going on inside of your body that has a name or has a scary sounding uh, title can be difficult. And so I really think that we need to emphasize with our patients to use those portals and gain as much information as you can about your record, but to take it as an opportunity for a discussion point with your doctors. Is it fair to say that the more experienced the radiologist, the less likely they will report an incidentaloma? I think that's true. Another, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think that uh, the more experienced radiologists tend to be inversely proportional to the length of their report too. Ah, yes. yes. Yeah. You know, I, I used to have a, a professor who was a sports medicine imager and he would always say, you know, when we, when we interpret an exam, we have, as you said, the body of the report and then the impression, it's kind of like, here's the key take home. And there will sometimes be a numbered list. And he would always say, if you have more than three points on your impression, then you don't know your referring physician. Oh, okay. because one of the things I've read about in these articles on in reducing incidental lomas is that maybe on the 
on the radiology test, they should block out the areas that the ordering doctor is not interested in. So is that what he was saying to mentally do? In other words, your ordering physician is looking for something, whether it's there or not. He's not so concerned about these other things. How does that fit together? I think it's really important for physicians to think of each other as colleagues. And what goes along with that is to consider our interactions as consultations. And it's tempting for certain hospital-based services um, in medicine, like pathologists or radiologists, to think of themselves as report generators. And I think Uh. that's really problematic. If you think of yourself as a consultant, then you're answering a question. Everything you do is answering a question. So when I write a report or dictate a report for a radiology study. I don't think of a checklist and I don't think of a catalog. I think, what's my question? What's my answer to the question? Gotcha. So how often, say uh, out of a hundred tests that you read, how often do you generate or suggest another test because of an incidental finding, not one related to the reason for the test? I would say incredibly rarely, incredibly rarely. In my experience as a pediatric radiologist, I could probably, you know, say a, less than once a year, do I find something incidentally on a study that is dangerous and absolutely requires follow-up that no one was expecting. An example would be um, there's a there's a GI team here at Riley that deals with chronic constipation, and they're continually getting patients with abdominal pain and bloating, and they come in and we do an x-ray to kind of get a visual assessment of the degree of stool in the colon. Sure. And this child came in 10 years old, we did the x-ray, and it didn't look like stool. So we did a CT scan. I recommended a CT scan and they had thought it was constipation, but instead of a full colon, it was a tumor sitting on the colon. Oh my. And everybody was shocked. The child came in thinking that they were just going to get, you know, some kind of stool softener and they ended up having cancer. Wow. So those cases are, are obviously critical and we need as, as medical experts to be able to recognize them, but they're pretty, a few and far between. Most of the time, there's a little calcification here, or there's evidence of an old injury there, or there's a little bit of, um, you know, a variation in the thickness of the cortex of the bone, stuff like that. <laughs> is, would you say that probably as patients age, there'd be more incidental omas as well? So that in the elderly, that's where you're you're really seeing a lot of different you know, kind of freckles on imaging, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's really true. Um, you know, Coronary artery and and peripheral arterial disease is a great example. Um, you know, all of the Americans who have some degree of metabolic syndrome are starting to get you know fatty replacement of their pancreas, or they're starting to get cysts on their kidneys, or they're starting to get you know um, you know evidence of prior infections in their lungs. We live in the Midwest, so we have endemic histoplasmosis. So everybody has calcifications in their spleen. Is it normal? Well, not really. Is it a problem? Problem? Absolutely not. Just means your immune system is doing its job. How how is it best, I guess, to to differentiate between incidental findings that need follow up versus not? Because the conversation that I usually have with patients is that you know even the radiologist said this is likely benign, um, but for them, you know, their their sample sizes is, is themselves, and this is a hundred percent. I've got to get to the bottom of this. So there's a huge pressure from the patient to get to the bottom of this. And usually as a family doctor, I I roll right over. I want to help the patient and they're going to be very upset if we don't get to the bottom of this. But that leads to a lot more imaging than I I think if we were looking at it objectively, we wouldn't order a lot of those studies, but the patients really want them. What's the answer? Right. Well, too often I hear conversations where we discuss the downsides of additional imaging to follow up incidental findings. The only downside we discuss is cost. And cost is a real downside. But for the patient who walks in with a stack of cash and says, I don't care how much it costs, my body is worth any expense, it, it doesn't really, there's no comeback to that. But the truth of the matter is, there's a lot more at stake than cost. And uh, we sometimes have a difficulty understanding the difference between risk and uncertainty. 
and I talk to patients about this sometimes, um, I do a lot of prenatal diagnosis, but we think we're talking about medical risk. What's the risk of ignoring a finding? What's the risk of not following up an incidentaloma, as you say? Um, but risk is a situation where all the possible outcomes are known. If I roll a pair of dice, there's only a set number of combinations of dice that can show up and it's knowable and it's calculable. But that's not real life. That's not medicine. We don't have a fixed known number of outcomes. There are infinite outcomes. There are infinite possibilities. And that includes harm to the patient because we're following up something that shouldn't be followed up. And I mean things like unnecessary biopsies, unnecessary surgeries, long-term complications from unnecessary surgeries. So there's a human cost, a physical cost that uh, sometimes people want to gloss over. And I think it's important if we're going to go chasing things down to talk about all of these future potential uncertainties, uh, because, you know, uh, sometimes my friends will say to me, you know, man, I, I was staring at more of those follow-up imaging studies and the more you look, you, the more you see, you know, if you stare at a study long enough, you start finding things. And I would, I would use the word things in quotation marks in the same way that if you lie on the couch on the weekend for too long and you think really hard about what hurts on your body, the longer you think, the more you can come up with. <laughs> Well, and you know, truthfully, I, I think one of my deeper fears and probably is for a lot of doctors is the idea of a lawsuit. So if I tell them this is probably benign, I wouldn't worry about it. But then lo and behold, you see enough patients, somebody's going to get cancer and you told them to ignore it. Uh, I I don't want the patient to undergo that, that harm, but I also don't want to get sued, which they'd be liable to do if I told them to ignore it. So yeah. how, how should I balance that? Yeah, that's a good question. The specter of, of lawsuits is always hanging over us. Um, there is some interesting research that I've seen that says that the more your patient views their uh, interaction with you as a relationship rather than a transaction, the less likely they are to seek you know, legal recourse. And too often, I think we bounce between these extremes of paternalism on the one hand, where we say, here's what you have to do because I'm the expert and you're not. And then this sort of radical autonomy on the other hand, where we say, oh, here's the randomized control trial dealing with your particular situation. Take it home and let me know what you decide. Yeah. <laughs> I'm staying out of it, you know, <laughs> because yeah. I can't possibly bear to take on that kind of risk. Um, that sends a message to the patient as well. It sends a message that we see them as a liability, maybe even a threat. And uh, we don't want to you know, risk anything uh, on their behalf. And so the more we can kind of engage in what people like to call shared decision-making and, and, and be honest, uh, you know, I have to be honest with, um, with patient families who are facing potential uh, fetal congenital anomalies quite often. And I'll say, well, here's, here's what we are worried about and here's our options. And if we do this, there's a couple of potential outcomes. And if we do that, there's a couple of potential outcomes and there's no right answer here. We need to understand what your goals are and we need to understand what we're capable of doing. And let's try and work together to come up with a solution. I think patients respect that kind of honesty and, and humility. So this comes into another main thing we wanted to talk about. It's maybe a good segue is how do we, and how do patients know what's the right number of radiology tests to order. It, it does less is more apply here? In other words, is less testing better uh, lead to more healthy patients? Because I read in the articles I reviewed for this, the talk of diagnostic waste and low value tests. How do we put that together in this crazy medical system of ours? Yeah, what a tough scenario. It really drills into the question of the strain in healthcare between the patient, the individual, and then the public health. Yes. Because the answer is different depending on whether we're looking at one person or we're looking at a population. Ah, you yes. know, so, and this is really true when it comes to screening exams. So let's talk about uh, mammography, for example. There's been some debate over the years about when to start getting mammograms and how often to get mammograms and what's the interval and all these things. And, uh, you know, intelligent people, experts, 
disagree about this sometimes because the truth of the matter is uh, we know that some patients are going to get breast cancer and if they never go in for screening imaging, we're not going to catch the breast cancer until it's so advanced that it has bad outcomes. But the other side of that coin is if we go out and start taking mammograms of every woman every six months, no matter what your age, we're going to find a bunch of things that we don't really understand and we're going to go after them and we're going to, we're going to do damage to people. We're going to remove breasts that were healthy breasts and that's a bad outcome, you know? So if we look at a million people, then we can show how many lives we've saved. But if we look at one person and you happen to be a person who got an unnecessary breast biopsy, screening exam wasn't such a great deal for you. So we really need to talk to patients like they're individuals, even though all of our data looks at populations, not individuals. And I think that that's, there's no answer to that question. It's a strain that we have to live with every day. But if we don't think about it, if we're not aware of it, we start treating the person in front of us like the, you know, conclusion of a research study. And that's not the same thing. That is a great point. And it brings me to another question that's quite a practical one. And I think even since I went to medical school, uh, people, doctors are relying more and more on diagnostic confirmation by a radiology test before pursuing a treatment, whether it's medical or surgical. Do you think that's the case? Are we relying too much on imaging results before we will do a treatment? Uh, that's a controversial question. Tough to answer. Um, you know, from the perspective of somebody who doesn't stand on the front lines in the emergency department and face the onslaught of whatever that day, that weekend, that month happens to throw at me, I'm tempted to sit back and say, boy, imaging volumes just go up every year. We saw COVID come last year and we thought, oh, everybody's staying home. There's quarantine. We better expect the utilization of imaging to drop. And you know what? It just went up again. It just keeps going up and up and up. Did um, it drop for a little while during early COVID? It dropped when hospitals stopped doing elective outpatient procedures. Okay. But as soon as they were permitted, imaging utilization went not just back to the where it was, but surpassed it. And so we know people are counting on this more and more. And it's tempting to say, wow, uh, the human race isn't getting sicker and sicker, so people must be using imaging too much. Uh, but the other side of that coin is the practice of medicine has changed. You know, when the when the you know stethoscope first became widespread available technology, there are some accounts I've read of physicians talking about how you didn't know what you were doing if you had to rely on a stethoscope to detect a <laughs> heart murmur. You know, so uh, anytime we have an innovation, there's a shift in the way we practice, and I think that it's probably not helpful to say, man. Back in the day before imaging, we used to spend a lot more time on physical exam. I mean, that's true on one hand, but I don't think we're going back to those days. So the real question is, um, how can we accept medicine as it's practiced now and recognize the different needs that each specialty has? Because it's a little unfair to take someone, I return to the emergency room as my example, because they just are under so much pressure from uh, volume of patients to, you know, all the hospital metrics that seem to be aimed right at them. And the administrators are always calling them up and saying, hey, can you <laughs> help your turnaround times? Um, you know, it's, it's a little unfair to say, here's your math test. At the back of the book is the answer key, but we really don't want you to look at the answer key. And oh, by the way, if you get any questions wrong, somebody could die. <laughs> <laughs> of course they're going to want to look. And then on that black and white answer, we are going to take a break here at Dr. Doctor and be back with more information on how much radiology testing is enough. And we're back with Dr. Doctor today talking to Dr. Brown about radiology and incidental omas, which is something that beleaguers me frequently. Um, you know, Brandon, here's a question. Patients sometimes, in the interest of avoiding radiation, request things that have less or no radiation, like an ultrasound or an MRI versus a CT scan. In the back of my head, I'm thinking that's never going to get covered by insurance, but they want to avoid the radiation. When is a good time to ask your doctor if one of those tests is more appropriate? I would say 
Um, there's a really underutilized resource, and this is a little bit self-serving for me to say it because I've worked on developing this resource. It's free. It's uh, available to patients and physicians alike, and it's called the ACR Appropriateness Criteria. And you can just Google that. And we've tried to go through and think up just about every presenting complaint that, that routinely appears be, be, before primary care, subspecialists, everyone. And then we've gone through and we've used this very simplistic green, yellow, red labeling system for all the known studies. So if a patient walks in with chest pain, should you do a chest x-ray, green, yellow, or red? Should you do a CT? Should you do an MRI? How about nuclear medicine scan? How about ultrasound? And we go through, we, we extensively review the available literature, hundreds of, of uh, you know, peer-reviewed references for every one of these clinical indications. And uh, we have a, a, a group, a multidisciplinary group. So the one I'm on is a pediatric uh, body imaging. And we just, um, in the last couple of years, we wrote a paper on what to do when you find antenatal hydronephrosis, fluid accumulated mm-hmm. in the kidneys of a of a fetus after they're born, what should you do? And, and it was radiologists discussing this. We had nephrologists and urologists joining us. And there's an extensive resource that is quite helpful because I think this is a very confusing question. There's many patients get this resource. (laughs) Get this resource. Yeah. I mean, it's on the internet. It's so easy to find. You type appropriateness criteria, ACR into Google, and it's all listed there. It's it's that's American college of radiology. That's right. And it's continually being updated and expanded. So, you know, topics that were addressed 10 years ago are being revised and updated. And uh, I think that it's, it is something that people are using, but not as much as they could. So I would encourage everyone, but especially uh, physicians, to tap into this every chance you can. Oh, I think that's that's great advice. And, you know, patients are always bringing internet information and doing research. Uh, your family doctor wholeheartedly endorses this resource. Please look at that. <laughs> and uh, we'll be in agreement. I think that's awesome. That was worth the whole interview, Brandon. Uh, your, your work here is done. Actually, it's not. <laughs> so, so on the other hand, what radiology tests do you think should be ordered more often because they have found to be incredibly helpful? Well, one of the really important um, developments in the last 20 years has been the push towards what we call imaging wisely and imaging gently. And these are two initiatives that have been, um, you know, largely spearheaded by radiologists, but at the request of other physicians and even, you know, some, some public advocacy groups to make sure we're, we're not over imaging with radiation and that we're not um, using too high dose of imaging. So if you think about the, latter half of the 20th century, we were getting all these brand new technologies like CT wasn't available. And then all of a sudden it was MRI. You couldn't get one. And then all of a sudden everybody's got one. And then compare the last 20 years to that. We haven't had the same level of groundbreaking brand new types of imaging. But what we have done is we've really refined the technology so that these exams are faster than they've ever been and lower dose than they've ever been. So the dose for example, of CT scans at the children's hospital where I work has been decreased so much to the extent that if a child comes in, common complaint, they think they aspirated a Lego. Mom and dad call them with a Lego in their mouth and they didn't see it. Now they're breathing a little strangely. We want to know, is there a Lego in their airway? We can do a low dose CT to look for airway obstruction. That's about the same radiation as one and a half or two x-rays. So, you know, it's, it's changed. The whole playing field has changed and it's all because of perspective. Isn't it true that some CT scans have been like 200 times as much as a chest x-ray? That's right. Yeah. So when we first developed CT, (laughs) it's changed a lot and the technology is better. You know, physicians have demanded it. Patients and, and families have demanded it and the manufacturers have responded. And I think people are also being a little bit more careful. Um, the other type of imaging that's really exploded is ultrasound imaging because in the last, uh, dozen or so years, it's not just radiologists anymore that are using ultrasound. Right. Primary care doctors of all types are using ultrasound um, in what we call point of care ultrasound or POCUS. 
and uh, it's, it's the pocus and hocus pocus. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 able to you know work now. You can buy ultrasound probes that plug into your iPhone. You can put them in your pocket, walk around, do rounds with the ultrasound. It's amazing wow. for third world countries where they don't have fancy equipment in big fancy hospitals, but you know a doctor can have an ultrasound probe in their coat pocket. So we're starting to see more widespread use of portable and um, non-invasive imaging like that. And I think that it's important um, for us to continue to explore those avenues. You know, Brandon, there was a report from Consumer Reports not too long ago that said that potentially 2% of all future cancers in the U.S. will stem from radiation uh, from CT scans alone, that we have caused those cancers. A lot of times patients hear this and they're really reticent to receive any radiation at all. You had mentioned how the technology is getting better. How, how should we balance that risk of radia- radiation with the need for testing? Well, I mean, it's something that we need to stay mindful of. We can't ever decide we're done with that. We're too good for it. Um, so it's a valid point. Um, I do think that numbers like that, especially when they're published by a group that's you know best known for new car buying guides, um, may not be the <laughs> optimal source um, because <laughs> it goes back to that question of risk and uncertainty. Most of the harm posed by radiation in imaging studies gives a kind of increased risk that is unknowable. We know that it's going to increase your risk of cellular transformation compared to if you didn't have the exam in the first place. But we cannot quantify that risk because it's not a cumulative risk. And most of the data that we have on radiation and the toxic effects of radiation, the cancer-causing effects of radiation, almost um, you know the vast majority of, of the information we have is from research done on people affected by atomic bomb explosions, which (laughs) there's some overlap admittedly, but these are not the same thing. And, uh, and it's unethical really to, um, to subject people to studies where we're specifically trying to expose them to risk (laughs) from radiation. So we have limited knowledge of exactly how many x-rays lead to how many problems. I don't think it's helpful to think of it in that simplistic of an equation. So another thing that came up in the articles I used to prep for this episode talked about reducing these incidental findings by using artificial intelligence-based interpretation software. What role, if any, does that or will that play in your world of radiology? Well, uh, it's been extensively discussed and reported and talked about and studied, and I, I think that it's going to continue to be. Although some of it, as you might expect, has been hype. Um, a number of years ago, one of the one of the leaders of a I won't say which one, but of one of the major companies developing um, software for artificial intelligence and machine learning said, "Stop training radiologists because oh. the technology's there. We're just not going to need them anymore." <laughs> and fortunately, that prediction oh. turned out not to be true, um, because it turns out that. Like we talked about at the beginning of this interview, the problem is not as much about finding things. The problem is knowing how to sift through what's relevant and what's not, what's important and what's not. Um, you know, a great example of that would be computer-assisted detection for mammography, CAD, uh, which is a technology that's been around for quite a while now. And when it first came out, there was a lot of anxiety and speculation and, you know, is this going to take the place of breast imagers? And having worked with that type of software, although mammography is not my specialty, most of the time you spend going through all of the things that the computer flagged and saying, nope, that's actually fine. Nope, that's actually not a problem. Nope, that's okay. So the computer does sort of a first pass. It identifies a few things, and then you have to go through and decide whether those things are relevant or not. And that level of interpretation is a lot different than playing Where's Waldo. (laughs) Right. So... You are uh, a type of renaissance man. I even used that term introducing you before you came on the show. (laughs) And so we want to talk a little bit about the principles of Catholic social teaching. How did they apply here in your world of knowing who to test, how much to test, when to test? Because, you know, we talk about, you know, the common good. So in our society, we use twice as much money 
per person in medical care in our country versus the 10 other wealthiest countries in the world. But yet we also respect human dignity. We don't want to miss an opportunity to help a patient. How do we balance these things, Brandon? How do we think about this? Yeah. What what a valuable uh, question you're asking because it turns out that not only is there unequal use of resources between developed and so-called third world countries, but even in our own country, there's some research now coming out showing that underserved communities get lower quality imaging. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, who's doing that? Why would, I mean, how could you get away with that? That's just so obviously wrong, but it's subtle and it's not always planned that way. But for example, in communities that uh, have less healthcare facilities competing for their money, maybe because there's not that much money to compete for, those healthcare facilities might have access to less advanced technology. And so the patients who live in that area are going to a healthcare facility with lesser, you know, equipment. And another example would be uh, patients who are unable to get to a major medical center Maybe they live in an area that's very remote. Maybe they themselves don't have personal transportation. A lot of our outreach efforts to these communities involve portable imaging, which we can actually put on a truck and drive out to certain, you know, kind of microcosms of different communities. And it's a great way to reach them and get healthcare to them rather than waiting for them to come to us. But as you might imagine, the portable version of medical imaging is not quite as high quality as the big fancy scanner sitting in your fancy hospital. So we're, we're beginning to study and recognize ways even that our technology is, um, is a, a potential source of inequity. And as has been famously said, uh, you know, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so that's what we're talking about is people who um, are living among us and yet are almost in a past age when it comes to healthcare. And uh, it, it really requires our effort and our energy to think about how we're going to take care of the least among us. Well, and you know, Brandon, Tom had mentioned that, especially compared to other countries, America spends so much money on medical care. In the first quarter, we, we quoted how many images per thousand people. And it's like, uh, it was like one in three almost get a CT scan annually in America. Is it that we're doing too much or they're not doing enough? I, I wonder how much of this is that we can. And so we do. Yes. And we have created a sort of expectation of a level of care um, that is maybe not the right level of care. So we spend a lot of time talking about, well, you have to do this because it's the standard of care. And to a certain degree, that's the reality of the medical legal world. But we spend less time sitting down and agreeing, what should the standard of care be when it comes to utilization of resources? You know, as you say, just because you can, does it mean you should? Should we give out our resources to the people who have the most money to pay for it? Because these resources do cost money. Uh, and some people would say, yeah, and they should go to the highest bidder. Uh, but then you know, every dollar that we spend towards cutting edge technology or high tech imaging, even for a screening purpose, um, is money that we're not spending on a, an intervention that could make a big difference to a large population, but at a very basic level, you know, like treatment for malaria or cholera, something where we can save thousands of lives. They just don't happen to be lives of people living in our neighborhood. So you work on these ethics committees like in pediatrics or in radiology world. What are the key things you're working on on those committees that might interest us, especially in light of our own Catholic teaching? Well, I think that it's, you know, it's been really interesting to me to read about how we can reconcile the emphasis in the gospel, which is just blatantly and repeatedly talking about the poor and our need to care for the poor and how close the poor are to God. And we have these heroic examples of saints, some of them physicians, who've gone out into radical, you know, far-flung locations to do that. But then there's the question of you and I, who are living where we are and are situated in our lives with our families and our jobs, um, how can we have a special focus on the poor. Sometimes in the in Catholic social teaching, it's called the preferential option for the poor. Yes. How can we do that? And I think that 
it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't, it's so easy to come to work, sit back in our chair and wait for the patients to come to us. But when we do that, we're accepting first come first serve. We're accepting highest bidder type care. And I think we need to be very intentional about finding those pockets in our own communities, in our own cities. And that's something we've tried to do uh, here in Indianapolis to reach out um, and look specifically at populations who don't know as much about even what's available to them. So you were talking earlier in the show, what should patients ask for? What should they advocate for when they're talking to their doctor, when they're looking in their patient portal? Well, there are big chunks of our population that don't even have the basic information to know to ask for an imaging study or to know that it's time to go in for a screening mammogram. So there's a lot of outreach that's required. And one area we've been focusing on is education for young students who would make excellent medical professionals, but maybe they don't know any doctors. They certainly don't have any doctors in their family. They've never met a doctor except when they actually have a complaint. So we've been doing outreach with middle schools and high schools, especially in areas where they're less likely to be exposed to that, bringing those kids in, exposing them to healthcare, getting them mentors who are physicians, showing them what medical research is like, and trying to create a clearer pathway uh, for students from diverse backgrounds to come in and become part of the medical profession. Because that's not just an ad of one person. They go back to their community. Now they're somebody that other people know. Now more people in that community know a doctor and they can go from there. Um, and I think that we need to think long term. That's kind of playing the long game when it comes to inequity. Brandon, in our last minute together, what final words do you want to leave listeners with on this topic? Uh, <laughs> that is um, probably just that the real way to affect how we handle our bodies and our health care um, is it's going to depend not just on whether we advocate for ourselves and know enough and seek enough, but it also has to do with how we think about our lives. And the Gospels are big on parables that talk about money um, and uh, whether you spend it wisely or whether you bury it in the backyard. And I think our bodies and our time are the same way. We could think of our bodies as something that need to be preserved and protected and stored up at all costs. Or we could think about ourselves as here for a purpose, a mission, a calling, and to pour ourselves out in the service of those around us. And I think when it comes to health care and even thinking about your own body, of course we want to take care of our bodies, but we're not going to live forever, no matter how much you spend, how many CT scans. <laughs> and there's a different mentality between storing up and uh, giving away. Brandon, beautiful way to end. Thanks for being so helpful and practical to our patients here on Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much. And we are back with Dr. Doctor after a great talk with Dr. Brown about radiology and incidental findings. We have the long-awaited for medical trivia question. Category um, radiology on the highway. Short version of the question. What is the unit of measure of how strong a magnetic field is? That's also the name of, the, of a car that's on the highway now. That was and, a good question, Tom. And I it's like made, it. it's named after, it's eponymous, which means it's named after a person. And this person lived in a town in Croatia. Ethnically, he was a Serb. His father was an Orthodox priest. He was a college dropout who incidentally was a genius. And his name was Nikola Tesla. So the, the answer Tesla is the Tesla. Car. That's pretty impressive. You know, the, the Teslas, I'm starting to see more of them around. Sounds pretty fancy, but it makes and, sense if it's the and, same thing as MRI. And right? we get no money from Tesla, by the way. <laughs> so, Andrew, over to you for the top three takeaways from this chock full of Practical Wisdom episode. Yeah, you know, Brandon is so great. And I'd, I'd have to say the number one, I'd encourage patients to look at it as well as uh, providers, the ACR, American College of Radiology, appropriateness criteria and you can just key that into google and as as uh, brandon said you know there's so many different indications and the appropriate test and that will give you an idea probably of what your doctor might order and if they order something different you can point to that and say why that's not what the college of radiologists says <laughs> i will be pleasantly flabbergasted when somebody brings me that but that is an excellent resource yes um number two i'd say takeaway that really struck me is how much better our technology is getting. You know, we, we had been kind of prepared to quote that, that data point where 
a CAD scan is 200 x-rays. And we were corrected by Brandon. He said some of them, now the low dose ones are like maybe one and a half x-rays. Yeah. Well, well, gee whiz, they, you get so much more information. And with, with the tests getting better, that would encourage us that maybe we're not doing the damage that they used to in the past. So that was very encouraging. And I guess my, my number three takeaway would be when you get an incidental finding to trust the insight of the radiologist who's, who's collegially interpreting this study for us, and then also to trust your doctor. And uh, if your doctor says, you know, that's something that's benign, it's okay to go without because as the story we kind of related in the first quarter, yes. you might be in for a world of headache and anxiety if you go down that rabbit hole. If it's something that is benign, I would trust the radiologist and trust your doctor on that. Amen. And you know, this whole move toward appropriateness criteria, it's in all specialties. In my and most surgery, we have an app, the Mohs Appropriate Use Criteria app. And we use it all the time when we tell patients, no, it, you really don't need this. And it's really nice to have that expert-based um, uh, criteria to go on. There's, so, there's kind of like in parenting, you know, we said you don't have to work harder. If, if you work harder, you're not a better parent. I think there's this idea that if you do more, you're a better doctor. But sometimes less is more. And so hopefully Amen, people can take that. But thank you for listening to us more here on this episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some topics, check out our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.